John, beginning at verse 14, chapter 1, says, And the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. John bare witness of him and cried, saying, This was he of whom I spake. He that cometh after me is preferred before me, for he was before me. And then John speaks again, the apostle, and of his fullness have all we received grace for grace. For the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, which is in the bosom of the Father, he hath declared him. So John, saying that he wrote the things that he wrote, that you and I might believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, and that believing we might have life through his name. And that life you and I have is not a one-time experience. No doubt it's ongoing. Day after day, week after week, month after month, we find ourselves deriving fresh life from our Savior, deeper experience, greater communion, and uh, direction, and so forth. So John said he's written this gospel from that point of view. He wants folks to be able to take hold of this and to believe. Here, he does an interesting thing. He, in verse 14, begins to define some of the things he said in the first verse. There he said, in the beginning was the word of God. And here in verse 14, then he says, and the word of God became flesh and dwelt among us. Verse 1, he says, the word was with God. The idea is face to face. Here he says he came and dwelt among us to be face to face with us. In verse 1, he says, and the word was God. And here he said, and we beheld his glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So he's bringing Christ before us now in the incarnation. Matthew and Luke give us the history of the Incarnation. John gives us the mystery of the Incarnation. Our hearts can be absorbed with this throughout eternity, no doubt. Christ come in human flesh. John takes four words to describe the nativity. The word became flesh. Luke takes 2,500 words to describe the nativity. It came to pass in those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. This taxation first took place when Quirinius was governed in Syria. You know, you go through Luke's description, which we love at Christmas time. But John is saying something else. He's over 90 years old, twice the, the average lifespan of a male in his day. Again, lifespan 80 now that'd be like having a 160 year old right to you and he's talking about what he remembers what he saw what the holy spirit is putting on his heart the things of christ 
And he tells us here the word, the logos, and it's the last time in his gospel he uses that phrase, the word. And he tells us the word was made flesh. It is a participle that the idea is the word became flesh. He was active in it. It speaks of his pre-existence. When a child is born in this world, there's conception, there's growth, there's birth, there's personality that develops, you know, their preferences and so forth. In this nativity, what comes into human existence has already and always existed. There isn't anything new as Christ comes. His humanity does not subtract from his deity at all. The word became of his own will, speaking of his preexistence, the word became flesh. And something happens in that that had not happened through all of eternity. And it only happens one time. And it is never to be repeated. The word that was God becomes flesh, he says here. The mystery of this. And he took on human flesh. Look, so he could walk among us. We look how crazy the world is. We look at everything going on. We hear people saying, well, if there's a God, how come this? How come that? Here, Jesus wants us to understand it perfectly. So he puts on our flesh. And he steps into our world to walk with us. And he doesn't just put on our flesh until he's done his mission and then gets rid of it or takes it off, he today is still in human skin. The unlimited stepping into some type of limitation. How can we know? The the eternal stepping into time. The immeasurable stepping into something that can be measured. And when he ascends... And the disciples stand, they watch him ascend into heaven, be received by a cloud. The greatest part of that scene is on the other side. We have no record of it. It's not seen. On the other side, Jesus steps into glory in Adam's skin, with Adam's DNA and chromosomes. He steps into eternity with a human body. The angels are rejoicing. Heaven is singing. The praises of God are rising. Everything is thundering and it lights up. Because for the first time since the Garden of Eden, God again is back in open fellowship with an image bearer, with creation that he had made. Christ brings this, and at that moment, all of the Old Testament saints that died in faith have an assurance of resurrection and the kingdom that had been promised to them. What a remarkable, remarkable scene. And he takes that flesh. It says here that he put that on. We have a high priest tempted in all ways as we are, yet without sin, who can be touched with our infirmities. He not just intellectualize, he feels. There's a pathos. It's visceral. He's touched with our infirmities because the skin that he put on was still the skin with a curse upon it because he was tired. He was weary. He was hungry. He was thirsty. He experienced pain. He experienced 
death. And until he died on the cross and rose, that skin he had put on was like ours. And then when he rose, it was glorified. And it says that then our bodies shall be fashioned like unto his glorious body. He rose, but he said, touch me, feel me. Does the spirit have flesh and bone? Then it was what it had always intended to be. He rose. But he walked in it. He walked in our spacesuit. His His being was untainted, untouched, but he put on our skin and walked among us. You know, the the Egyptians worshipped Ra. They had a sun god. The Babylonians had their form of the same The pagan religions of the world had their gods, but they knew they looked like a scarab. They looked like a sun. They looked like this. And the Jews had the only true God, but they had no idea what he looked like. And it tells us here that Jehovah God, the word, put on human skin and stepped into our world so he could speak to us, so we could look into his face. So we could see his emotion. So we could hear his voice with human ears. So that he would know what betrayal felt like, what pain felt like, what injustice felt like, what accusations felt like, what gossip felt like. He stepped into our experience. God Almighty. Who can understand that? God Almighty who laid out the heavens with the span of his hand. Billions and billions and billions of light years. says he laid it out with the span of his hand. He always was. He always will be. Eternal. And he steps into time. And it says he steps into our flesh. The word, last time he uses it, logos, was made flesh and it says and he dwelt among us the dwelling there is eskino skino skin he literally he pitched his tent among us he tabernacled among us he he put on a tent you know i'm sure john when he is led by the spirit he writes this he thinks of the old testament tabernacle which was badger skin on the outside. It was clothed with skin, and the glory was on the inside. The glory was not seen openly, but it was certainly on the inside. Isaiah would say, For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Like the tabernacle of old, he puts on our flesh, he steps into our existence, and again, he does it to then take our skino back to the presence of his Father in heaven. How remarkable to think that. Peter picks up on that, and he says that he must, you know, he's going to put us in remembrance of certain things, Second Peter 1, while he happens to be in this tabernacle, this tent. But he says, I am shortly to put off this tabernacle. He no doubt remember this. John, writing the book of Revelation in chapter 21, says that God shall tabernacle 
among them, you and I as people. He'll tabern- the tabernacle of God, that's Jesus in his skino, the tabernacle of God forever was with men. John sees it. And here he tells us, the word became flesh, sarks, what we are. And that was him tabernacling among us, pitching his tent, wearing our skin. He says, among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and of truth. He says, we beheld his glory. And and John, you know, John's going to describe that. John is the one who leaned on his breast and heard the heartbeat of God. John is the one who identifies himself as the one whom Jesus loved. Probably 15, 16 years old. Touched. He says, we beheld his glory. He will tell us this. In 1 John, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, gazed upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life, for the life was manifested. We have seen it and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father And was manifest unto us that which we have seen and heard declare unto you that you may have fellowship with us and truly our fellowship is with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. He says we saw it, we handled it, we heard it, we listened to it. John John is telling us that we, we looked at him, behold, to study, to scrutinize, uh, to, to think about, to meditate upon. We beheld his glory. They saw his glory when he, John says, we watched as he raised the dead. We studied it. We were amazed. We watched as he cleansed the leper. We watched, John says, as he opened the eyes of the blind. We watched as he called the dead back to life. We watched as the wind and the sea obeyed him. We watched as he fed the multitude with loaves and fishes. We beheld his glory. We were eyewitnesses. The glory as of the only begotten. There has never been reproduced that Jehovah put on skin. The only begotten of the Father, he says, full of grace and truth. We beheld his glory. His glory is he was full of grace and truth. Aren't you glad that Jesus Christ is full of grace? Because that's the only kind of Savior that's going to work for me. Because I got enough problems. I need a Savior that is full of grace. Right? He's full of grace and truth. Because he's full of truth, I go back and need his grace. The truth is, I need the, the grace. He's full of grace and truth. Because if he was just full of, full of grace, we would be rascals. If he was just full of truth, we'd be under the law. But he's full. He's brimming over with grace and with truth. You know, you and I, 
many here that be here this morning are listening, we struggle with that because we've never known someone giving that to us without strings attached. God's, God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace. We, we've never known love like that. You know, again, Camel Morgan, uh, one of my favorite authors in Micah 7.18 says, Who is like unto thee? Who is like our God? Rich in mercy and so forth, not holding his anger, not maintaining that, but showing richness and goodness to us. And he tells us there, Campbell Morgan says, Mike is telling us that you and I see something every day that God can't see. You and I see something every day that God can't see. Because he says, who is like unto thee? Every day we see our equals. Gnarly human beings, driving and texting at the same time, drinking their coffee, blowing their horn, angry, gossiping. We see something every day he can't see. And we've been loved and extended grace to us in the context of human grace and human love. And human love is like, hey, you like the Eagles? I like the Eagles. You must be smart. (laughs) You like the Sixers? I like the Sixers. You are really something. You like backstrap? I like backstrap. You like rack of lamb? If you love me, feed me sheep. We're on the same page there, you know? There's something in somebody else that elicits our love because of a commonality, and we think they must be brilliant. They're just like me. But the ancient rabbis said that God, Jehovah, loves us because he loves us. There's no reason. There isn't anything in us that elicits that. So when God steps into human flesh, human skin, and demonstrates who he is, it says in that demonstration he is full of grace and full of truth. And we can only receive that in faith. We have to step out of the boat onto the water because I'm full of some other stuff. I wish I was just full of grace, but I'm not. Mess with me, you'll find out. Right? I wish I was just full of truth, but I'm full of grace, and I'm full of truth, and I'm full of baloney, too. <laughs> and so are most of you. Do not laugh at me. You know, we're, we're an admixture of, you know, things that are divine because we're born again, but because we're fallen, this corruption needs to put on incorruption. This, more, you know, mortal needs to put on immortality. And this is telling us there's one distinct from all of us. He's not like any of us. He's full of grace. He's full of grace. He's full of it. It's it's overflowing. There's not anything mixed in that. It's pure. It's overflowing. He's full of grace. And he's full of truth, which means he's justified in bestowing that grace upon us because he's also filled with truth. There's no doubt. There's no mistake. He's not wondering. He's demonstrating to us. He's full of grace and truth, it says. And I'm thankful for that. And I'm still growing in that. Growing grace, Peter was saying, in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says he's full of grace and truth. And then John the Apostle jumps to John the Baptist. We have the last apostle telling us about the last prophet. 
And he remembers, no doubt, when he was a kid, 15 years old, dropping the fishing nets, following this madman, this madman down, you know, baptizing, eating grasshoppers and wild honey and yelling at the political leaders. And it was something in John, you know, John and James wanted to burn up Samaria. There was some, there was a, he, he resonated somehow with John the Baptist. And he tells us here, you know, John said this, verse 15, John bare witness of him and cried, saying, this was he of whom I spake. Because the, the religious leaders are going to say, are you the one to come or should we look for another? Are you the Christ? He said, no, I'm not. I'm just the voice of one crying in the wilderness. He says, John the Baptist bare witness of him and cried, this is he of whom I spake. And then he does this, remarkable. He says, he that cometh after me. In other words, Mary goes into the hill country of Judea to the house of Zechariah and Elizabeth, where Elizabeth is already six months pregnant with John the Baptist. And Mary has just conceived. And when Mary speaks, Elizabeth says, the babe leaped in my womb when he heard your voice, the, the mother of my Lord. So it says, he says here, this was he of whom I spake, he that cometh after me. John is six months older than Jesus. So he's speaking about time. He comes after me. I went forward to prepare the way of the Lord. He stepped onto the scene after that. He says he's the one who was after, cometh after. That's in time, our existence. He is preferred before me. That's his status, his glory, his worthiness. He's preferred before me. I'm not worthy to unloose his sandals. He's preferred before me. And he says that's because he was before me. Speaking of his eternality, John says this is the one, the Lamb of God, we're going to hear him say, that takes away the sin of the world. No doubt John the Apostle remembering back, thinking of John the Baptist saying these things, the Spirit leading him as he puts the quill to the page, and he writes this out for us. And in verse 16, he jumps back then to his narrative, John the Apostle, and he says, and of his fullness, verse 14 says, this is his fullness, he's full of grace and truth. John says, of his fullness, have we all, all of us here today, we all received grace for grace. It's an interesting structure there. It means grace on top of grace. It means grace continuing to be grace. It means grace following grace. It means grace that keeps flowing. It means grace that is never exhausted. He says here, that of him we have all received one measure of grace, and as we're partaking of that, another measure of grace is already coming. That's what I need, right? Because we mess up, we do something wrong. I don't want to saying that for your benefit, but, you know, we mess up, we do something wrong, we find ourselves on our knees, we're saying, oh, Lord, and then, then his grace, we encounter his grace, and we realize, yeah, I'm forgiven, Lord, because of what you did on the cross. And just as we're getting through that, we bumble into something else and we need another measure of his grace. And we're thinking, 
he's going to say, oh, not you again. No, he doesn't do that. The grace never stops flowing. It's grace upon grace that comes to us. That's how we're able to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It flows unendingly. It isn't to be abused. It isn't used so that we can live in sin. This is coming to the broken son or the broken daughter that's realizing their imperfection. You know, one of the places I live spiritually is in Psalm 19 where it says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength, my rock, and my redeemer. Let the words of my mouth, anybody relating to me here? Because sometimes words come out and you can't reel them back in once they escape, right? James says they're in a cage, just keep it shut, you know. But, you know, he says, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart, how often we would dread having the meditation of our heart on the, on the overhead projector here, right? The words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart. Be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord. Man, so often I think my words are not, or the meditation of my heart is not. Let it be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord. He says this, my rock or my strength, and wonderfully, my redeemer. If you want to walk before him, he has to be your redeemer. If you really want to measure your thoughts and your mouth, he has to be your redeemer. And wonderfully, because he is our redeemer, the first thing he says is let. It's a prayer. It's a request. Let. It's not going to happen without you, Lord. It's not going to happen unless there's grace upon grace. Let the words of my mouth. Let the meditation of my heart. Let it be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord my strength and my redeemer. You know, and here it says, you know, John the Apostle is saying, look from him, grace upon grace, upon grace, and then grace. It's unending, he says, of him we have all received of his fullness. That's what he's full of. We've received grace for grace. He says, here's why I'm saying that. For the law was given by Moses... But grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. The law was given by Moses. Notice it was given. It was divine. It was on the tablets of stone. And a human instrument, Moses, brought that to the children of Israel. The law, it was divine. It is right. The law was given by Moses. Grace and truth wasn't given. It came. Grace and truth put on skin. What the law could not do, Jesus Christ did. And in fact, he says here, grace and truth came. And then he uses his name for the first time in his gospel. He's going to use his name 247 times in his writing. He says, grace and truth came by now Jesus Christ. The word of God now, which he used the last time, verse 14, has become Jesus Christ. We need grace upon grace and upon grace, he says, because the law 
was given by Moses. The law was never given to produce righteousness. The law was given to make us realize we had a problem. You take your temperature with a thermometer. Then you see that you have a fever. You don't get a glass of water then and swallow the thermometer. The thermometer doesn't cure the fever. You see your dirty old face in the mirror. You don't wash the mirror. The law brought us face to face with our imperfections. Grace and truth take us somewhere else. Because it put on skin. It walked among us. It was beaten beyond human recognition. It bore our sins upon the cross. It rose again. It ascended. And it's coming back for us very, very soon. Grace and truth came once. It is coming again. We will appreciate that coming because of the grace. But he will also be coming as the truth in the world. It will be the rude awakening as he comes. And then he says, no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten of the foe, which is in the heart of the Father, he hath displayed him. It's very interesting. The order in the language is God. That's the first word in that sentence. Hath no man seen. It's emphatic. God. I'm talking about God. God. It's emphatic. There's an emphasis there. God hath no man seen. He's telling us. Moses saw the goodness of God pass before him. God put his hand on him in the cleft of the rock. He saw his goodness, saw his glory. In the Old Testament, there were appearances of the pre-incarnate Christ, theophanies. But to look upon God. He says, no man has seen God, or literally, God hath no man seen at any time. The only begotten Son, the only time this has ever happened or will ever happen, the only begotten Son, now wonderfully, he says, which is in the bosom of the Father, that's timeless. It's a participle that expresses only durative being, which means it is a timeless being, that he is, was, and always will be in the heart of the Father. Now, again, John, uh, the Greek People like Greek love John because there's there's a simplicity to his gospel. He only uses 600 words. I mean, Luke, when he writes his gospel, he uses two, 312 words that aren't found anywhere else in the New Testament. John only uses 600 words. That's the vocabulary of a six-year-old. Kids live, learn 100 words a year on average, and most six-year-olds know 600 words. So John, just so we don't get messed up, he talks to us in the vocabulary of a six-year-old. And he says, I've said these things that you might believe. Jesus is the Christ. I have a purpose. Believing you might have life through his name. It is as simple and pure and wondrous as you can imagine. But John takes those 600 words and he does things to them that no one else does. And one of those is here. It's remarkable when he says... He says that the only begotten is today, always was, was when he wrote, and is today, existing in the very heart of God. And it says, 
that that son hath declared him, exegato, we get exegete from. You know, today, you know, we're expounding the scripture. We're exegeting it. We're trying to get out of the scripture what's already there. Eisegesis is somebody putting their own story, their own meanings. Or that You know, there's a difference between teaching the Bible and teaching from the Bible. When you're teaching the Bible, you're exegeting. When you're teaching from the Bible, you're using it as a springboard so often to say what you want to say. Again, I think of Kevin DeYoung saying, are you, to, to pastors, are you at your best when you're closest to the text? There's a lot of people entertaining out there, saying all kinds of things. But it says here that Jesus exegetes, he expounds God the Father. His life, his being, declares he really exegetes. Everything the Father was, Jesus brings out of it. Everything that was already there, he brings into the light. You know, that's so important. We have so many again today in the church, they're trying to take the word and make us relative to the culture. They're trying to lower its standards so we don't offend anybody. They're trying to darken it, you know, add some gray and some fog to it so it doesn't blow everybody out and offend everybody. No, that dark, lost world needs the blazing light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. With no compromise. With no compromise. And he says here that Jesus Christ exegeted the Father. You want to know what the Father is? Look at the Son. He's the Word that put on human skin. He's the one that said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I and the Father are one. I don't say anything unless the Father says it. I don't do anything unless the Father does it. And he said, how is is it, Philip, you're still saying, show us the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And it's wonderful because, look, people will say, "Eh, yeah, well, if your God is a God of love, you know, how come there's hungry people in the world? So do you want to see God's heart towards the hungry? You watch Jesus. With five loaves, three fish, feed a multitude till they're glutted. That's God's heart towards the hungry. If God, yeah, well, if God's a God of love, how come there's sickness? Well, let's watch Jesus because he exegetes the Father. He takes what's there and brings it into the open, opening the eyes of the blind, cleansing lepers, healing the lame. That's the heart of God towards everything this world is suffering with in regards to their health. Well, God's a God of love. How come my son died or my dad just died too young or whatever it might be? And he said, watch Jesus. He enters into death in our place. He bears our sins on the cross. And he rises victorious, having paid the price. What he thinks of death is, we all need to escape it. And because we never could, he went and paid the price to get us out in his own blood. He put on our skin 
And he died on the cross, nailed there, felt pain, entered into death, cried, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So you don't ever have to cry that. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ is your Savior, listen, this is important. Death is total in every generation. I mean, you got to just this, this is a deep truth. You got to get a hold of it. For every 100 people born, 100 people die. It may be cancer at a young age. It doesn't seem right. It may be on the battlefield where there's a hero. It may be in old age at 90 years old. The point is, is death is total in every generation. 100 people are born. 100 people die. Well, if God's a God of love, how can he let... He didn't let it go on. He stepped into our world. He put on our skin. He bore our sin without having sinned, which, which elicits a price. It pays for something. So that you and I today can take advantage of the fact someone went in front of the firing squad for us. Someone went to the electric chair for us. Someone took the bullet for us. Someone paid the price for us. Uh, Again, because we owed a debt we couldn't pay, he paid a debt he didn't owe to set us free. And John said, I'm writing these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. He's the Son of God. And that believing, you might have life through his name. And if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, forget about Calvary Chapel. That's not what we're talking about. Forget about religion. Religion from the Latin word relingare. It's man's attempt to relink with a holy God, whether it's you know, doing this, doing that, crawling on your knees to a statue. Man trying to relink. No, no. Christianity is God relinking with fallen humanity. He came and took on skin and walked among us. He crossed the gap that you and I can never cross. And he paid the price. So you and I, believers today, we need to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Savior. We need to look at these things and measure these things and think about these things and realize, you're going to blow it today? You can go to him because there's grace flowing there. And when you get there, it's not like the river's going to stop. Oh, no, not you again. No, it's grace upon grace. It's inexhaustible. Not to be taken advantage of. That's not the idea. But we come in our brokenness. We come with our confession. We come with our repentance. And his grace flows and flows and flows with his truth. If you've never come to him, as we sing this last song, and I'll ask some musicians to come. As we sing this together, I would ask you, you get out of your seat, come down and stand here. If a friend brought you, they're going to go with you. And we would love to pray with you and give you a chance to ask Jesus to be your Savior, not Calvary Chapel, Jesus, and then give you a copy of the scripture and some literature to take with. We don't want your phone number, your email. We don't want anything from you. We want everything for you. And so does God Almighty. That's why he took on human flesh. And if you've not known him, look, he, he crossed he crossed a chasm unimaginable to come to us. We can walk down and stand here to come to him. The chasm he crossed was unimaginable. You know, again, what did it take for him to come in the likeness of sinful flesh, to put on skin? 
Again, I, uh, Chuck, my, my, my pastor Chuck used to say, you know, if you saw, you know, an anthill down by the curb and you knew the guys were going to open the fire hydrant and all the ants were going to die, what would you do to save them? He said, if you stood under them and said, you get out of here, you're going to drown, they'd all die of heart attacks with this big head screaming at them, you know. He said, the way to do that is you become an ant. And you walk among them. You tell them what's coming. You warn them. He said, the only thing is, you and I becoming an ant isn't nearly as bad as him becoming a human. Because we're way less than ants. In fact, in Psalm 22, he calls himself a worm. No offense, you can do with that whatever you want, you know. Um, but he crossed the barrier. He, he walked among us. Look at the world. Look at the news. Look at everybody professing this. Everybody professing that. Everybody claiming to know this. Everybody telling you you need to do this. Everybody telling you who you need to hate. Who you need to be divided from. What you need to do. There is one who came from eternity and put on our skin and walked among us who is 100% trustworthy and said, I'm here to bring God's love and forgiveness to you. And his demonstration and opinion is not to be compared at all to the hopelessness in the world that we presently live in. Jesus Christ, name above all names. Jesus Christ, like ointment poured forth. Jesus Christ, our shield, our buckler, our strength, our Lord, our Redeemer. Amen. Let's stand. Let's pray together. If you don't know Jesus today, we're going to ask as we sing this last song. Come on, stand down here. We want to pray with you. He, he crossed a chasm unimaginable to, to walk in our skin so that you could hear about him today. You can stand down here and say, I want to know him. I want a forgiveness. I want to go to heaven when I'm done with this life. Father, I know you've overheard we put these things before you. Lord, as we lift our voices in song, Lord, let our praise rise from Philmont Avenue here. In the midst of this crazy world, let what rises from here, Lord Jesus, bless your heart. But Lord, more, more than that, Lord, you say that you rejoice. When one sinner comes, all of heaven is rejoicing. When you have one son or daughter that comes home, Lord. That all of heaven rejoices, Lord. And you see us in this world. We get caught up in drugs. We get caught up in pornography. We get caught up in hatred. We get caught up in prejudice. We get caught up, Lord, in alcohol. We get caught up in money. We get caught up in a thousand things. And we still die. Our life still runs out. And Lord, you step into the middle of all of that hopelessness and tell us that this corruption can put on incorruption and this mortal can put on immortality. Draw to yourself today your sons and daughters, Lord, that need to be added to the church. You add daily such as should be saved, Lord Jesus. And lift our hearts up in these things. We trust you. We look to you, Lord. We pray in your name. Amen.